Turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to get to Ecclesiastes 11 in a minute. So if you want to stick your finger there, you can. We'll get back to Ecclesiastes in just a minute. But I want to start by reading a uh, scene that is tucked into the story of the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Matthew 2. Uh, This is a scene that takes place after the birth of Jesus, after the visit of the Magi from the east, and after Joseph and Mary and the young son have fled Bethlehem to find sojourn in Egypt uh, to hide there from King Herod. And this passage tells us how King Herod uh, responded. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here's a Christmas scene that for obvious reasons has never been depicted in a nativity. It doesn't make it into any uh, children's books about Christmas. How, how could you possibly capture this on a board book page? It doesn't make it into any one of our uh, Christmas carols. I have questions about this story. You probably have questions about it too. Uh, one of the questions uh, you might ask, you might wonder, how many, how many babies are we talking about? Probably not that many. Bethlehem was not that big a city. Eight or ten babies. Here's the question that I have. It's a little bit of a coarser question. How much alcohol do you have to drink in order to make following this order possible? How drunk do you have to be in order to be able to uh, kick in the door of someone's house and search it for their infant or for their toddler son and slit his throat or snap his neck or drive a spear through him into the ground? How drunk do you have to be to do that? How many soldiers would it take to accomplish that in a town? Either alcohol or or how much do you have to dehumanize these people, uh, these children, in order to do this, to treat them as if they're, well, this is a Nazi phrase, life unworthy of life. They're they're human, but they're, they're not really human, so we don't have to treat them as human. It's odd that this story is here. Uh, I think its presence in this context, in the context of the Christmas story, is to remind us about the type of world into which the Lord Jesus was born. He came from heaven. He came to a stable, yes. He came from splendor to squalor, that's true. But he also came from an assembly of infinite goodness into a world of terrible and uh, great evil. Birth in a stable, we romanticize that image. A beautiful baby, surrounded by the stench of manure. That sounds about right. 
The man who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, would agree with this assessment of the world, the world in which we live. It is at the same time very beautiful and incredibly broken. And we've spent the last through, uh, several months reading through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, trying to pull out some of the things that the teacher, that's what he calls himself, the teacher has to say about how to live by faith in a world that is so broken. Um, he reminds us that, that God is indeed sovereign, uh, but he does bewildering things. Sometimes what God does is confuses us. Uh, Ecclesiastes teaches us that um, we're going to encounter fools in this life. And fools in high places are very dangerous, so you have to walk wisely uh, with them. The teacher has told us that there's all kinds of things that human beings try to do to fix life, but they're uh, ultimately empty fixes. You, you can't solve an eternal problem with a temporary solution. The author of Ecclesiastes also tells us to be men and women, people who are marked by joy. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, today we're going to look through the teacher's last shot at this. There's an epilogue to the book that we're going to come to, Lord willing, after Christmas. But today this is his last effort, his last effort to teach us how to walk by faith and embrace the world with joy, even though the world is terribly broken. So let's read, shall we? So turn back with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to read 12 verses from chapter 11. Well, starting in chapter 11, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 12, 8 is what I want to read. And this is his last shot at trying to encourage us to walk by joy, by faith in this beautiful, broken world. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Look what the teacher says. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. This might be one of the places where it would be better to translate that word short-lived, temporary, elusive. Verse 9, You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are, again, short-lived, temporary. They're, they vanish like the mist in the morning. Remember your Creator, chapter 12 begins, in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors of the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along. <laughs> Poor grasshopper dragging itself along. And desire is no longer stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. 
Remember him. Remember God. Remember your creator. Before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless. Futile, futile. Missed, missed, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. You might have uh, noticed here that the teacher is in this, as he brings the book to a close, particularly concerned with the young. Most wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, was written to train young men. And he has the young in view here. If you're not young, you might find this passage useful if you read it in an as soon as possible fashion. Apply what the teacher says as soon as possible. If you're, if you're between 15 and 25, 15 and 30, you're in the sweet spot of this passage. If you're 60, you can still learn what the teacher says, but get after it as soon as possible. Now, so what is that lesson? What is that lesson? Let me summarize it this way, and then I'm going to try to unfold it. What is the teacher getting at here? He is saying, he is pleading with his young audience. He was saying to them, because your life on earth is so short, you need to get serious about joy. Because your life on earth is so short, you need to get serious about joy. So we have here, even in that sentence, a what, what are they supposed to do, get serious about joy, and a why, why should you do it? Because life on earth is so incredibly short. Let's talk about the why and then talk about the what. Let's spend some time pulling at the threads of this text where the teacher says, your life is incredibly short. Uh, Now, if you're over 60 years old, you already know this. You already know that your life is incredible. If you are under 20, you think this is the sort of thing that only old people say. But the teacher wants you to know your life is incredibly short. Look how he puts it in verses 7 and 8 of of chapter 11. He's using light and darkness as an image here. Uh, Light is his image for life. And it is sweet, it's pleasing, but there are, verse 8, days of darkness, death. There's days of death that are to come, and they are going to be many. In the course of human history, you will be dead longer than you will be alive. You will be forgotten for a much longer period of time than you will be loved on this planet. Verse 8, at the end, he says, everything to come is meaningless. Temporary. It's short-lived. You're young. Yes, you have your whole life ahead of you, but it will pass by with incredible speed and it will be over and it will be forgotten. This is the time of year we, have done, we, had, we used to, at this time of year, spend one evening at Dutch Wonderland for their Christmas light show. Uh, they put lights all over Dutch Wonderland and you can go in the evening and some of the rides are open and it's dark and cold and it's just fun to go and see all the beautiful Christmas lights at Dutch Wonderland. Well, we've outgrown Dutch Wonderland a little bit in our family. But one of my favorite things to do at Dutch Wonderland was to take them to the ride called the Whip and put my children on it. Um, I, was, I, I have not been small enough to get on the whip since 1987, but they were little, and when they were little, we'd go and put them on the whip. Have you seen the whip? The funniest thing about the whip is to watch, not the children, but watch parents watch their children. That's fun too. But, so you put the little kid in the car, and, and it, it, it goes down a, a track, kind of in a, in a, a long oval. 
and, and the whip will pull you along and you'll go along the sides. And at the end, there, there's a spring in the car. So when you go around the corner, it really whips you out and brings you back in. So these little children will get in the car and they'll start in the ride and then they'll go around the corner and <gasps> this big smile comes across and they giggle and giggle and giggle all the way around and then it stops and then they chug along and then again it comes to the corner and they giggle and smile. Every time, every time, this goes around the circle like 15 times and it's like a shock every time. <laughs> They're just delighted. They're just like, so happy. Um, I loved watching my kids ride the whip. Um, but now they're too big for the whip. And if I try to put them on it, they won't enjoy it like they used to. I might laugh, but for different reasons. <laughs> Those days are over. I'm never going to get to watch my kids enjoy that again. Now I'm starting to sound like an old man. Life is short. There are sights and sounds and tastes and experiences that you will never have again. And even if you could experience them again, you wouldn't enjoy them like you used to. To make this point really stick, the teacher includes this long poem in chapter 12. Did you notice this long poem? It starts in verse 2 and it ends in verse 7 of chapter 12. And the key word here is remember. Uh, no, sorry. The key word in this poem is before, before. It starts with remember. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Then verse 1, before the days of trouble come. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. And then verse 6, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring. This is a difficult poem. It seems to be a mixture of um, image and metaphor and symbol I can't explain uh, every detail, but the point seems to be that the aging process is inevitable and it is cruel. Aging takes and takes and takes and takes. Here's how some people have interpreted. Verse 2 uh, seems to be about the loss of your eyesight. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. You can't see uh, um, it's supposed to be after it rains, the sky is supposed to clear and it's, it's supposed to be clear and bright. But if you have cataracts, if you have glaucoma, it's not as bright as it should be. Clouds just remain. Verse 3 seems to be picturing your body as if it were a house. So if your body were a house and it was falling apart, this is how it would look like. The keepers of the house tremble, the guards, your arms guard your body. And the strong men, your legs, they, they stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few. What do you have in your body that grinds? Your teeth. And they're falling out. Those looking through the windows grow dim. Again, uh, reference to your eyes. When the doors of the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, I think that's a reference to your hearing. You shut the door to keep the sound out. If you shut the door, the sound will go out. Well, you'll get to a point where the sound will go out and the door will still be open. And, and uh, uh, you don't hear people working. But this is the cruelty. You can't hear anything, but that the slightest sound of the birds in the morning, they wake you up and you're up forever because there's no going back to sleep. Does verse 5 sound like anybody? People are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets. I don't think I'm that old, but heights bother me more than they used to. Uh, how about, um, 
Uh, do you know what uh, almond trees look like when they blossom? They get really white blossoms on it, and if you are far enough away, a blooming almond tree looks like the white head of hair. The grasshopper that's dragging along is not in good shape. Do you know anybody who walks like a grasshopper who's out of shape? When the text says, desire is no longer served, uh, uh, stirred, the text literally is referring to, it says literally, the caperberry fails. A caperberry was a plant believed to stimulate the appetite or even serve as an aphrodisiac, but it doesn't work anymore. And then there's death. The light goes out. Verse 6 is kind of strange. So it's referring to a golden bowl in which you would put uh, uh, oil for lamp, and uh, a lamp oil, and you'd, you'd light it and, and you'd have light and you'd hang it by a silver chain on, the, on, on a hook in your house. But if the silver chain breaks, the lamp falls to the ground, spills the oil, and the light goes out. I have a strange sense of humor. I've always been amused. Do you know Teddy Roosevelt's last words, President Theodore Roosevelt, his last words were, would someone please put out the light? And God did. Right? It's over. Uh, the pitcher is shattered at the spring. The well's broken. The wheel's broken at the well. There's no more production. Life is over. Now let's think about this moment, uh, this, this, this poem for a moment. Two observations I want to make about it. First, as you read this, you should notice... It's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's about everything. Why did he go into such incredible detail here in this poem? Why is it so long? He covers so much ground. He wants you to know. He wants you to remember. If you are young, everything to come in which you will place your hope, where you will set your life, everything is short. short. It's so short. It's temporary. It will be over very soon. Everything. Your excellent eyesight, your unparalleled hearing, your ability to bench press 200 pounds, your amazing jump shot, your 5K race time, your appetite, your skill at eating extra spicy tacos at 10.30 p.m. and still getting a good night's sleep. That's going to end someday. Let me introduce you to my friends, Mr. Hart and Mr. Byrne. They moved in when I hit 35. Your business, your perfect garden, your immaculate clothes, your restored sports car, you will be unable to maintain all of those things. And the joy you once had from them will be gone. You won't be able to take care of them and you won't care anymore because they won't make you happy. This decay is comprehensive. It touches everything you love, everything that brings you joy right now. It's falling apart. I haven't said it yet it is a wedding, at a wedding, but someday I'm going to. It's true. You are never going to look as good as you do on your wedding day. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> this poem is comprehensive. Something else you should notice, though, about this poem. It's creation in reverse. It's creation in reverse. He is describing a life being uncreated or decreated. This is about the undoing of all God's good work of creation. He, uh, notice the poem started with the sun, and the sun goes dark. In Genesis 1, God calls the sun into existence. Here he begins, the sun goes silent. And 
at the end of creation, as the ultimate act of creation, he calls up Adam out of the dust. And verse 7 says, you're going to go back to dust. This is about uncreation, decreation, uh, creation in reverse. And, and it reminds us about why the world is broken like it is by pointing back to Genesis. This is our contribution to creation. Here is what human beings have done with the world that God has made. We have broken it. He called the world into existence and it was nothing but good. It was very good. Everything about the world that God made is good. It oozed goodness. There was no sadness. There was, uh, no one was ever missed. No one was ever mourned. There were no ugly desires. There were no unmet needs. Everything was just good. It was whole. It was peaceful. It was satisfying in every way at every turn. But we human beings were pretty sure that we could make the world that God made better. It would be better if we were in charge. So we upended creation. We rebelled against the Creator and things have been falling apart ever since. You know what Herod did with those babies in Bethlehem? That terrible thing. Is as ugly as the twistedness that resides in every human heart. You have been both victim and perpetrator of ugliness. That ugliness, is, this passage reminds us, this ugliness is something that God has cast into your very bones. Remember this when they creak and they crack and when your eyes squint and you can't see and when your lungs don't work as efficiently as they used to. God has written into your very body the consequences of your rebellion against Him. These daily reminders, when you get out of bed tomorrow morning and you groan, this is a reminder from God that you need a Savior. He wrote it into your body. You need a Savior. You need to be rescued from this broken world. God takes our rebellion very seriously. You know how seriously He takes it because... He, he takes it so seriously that he executed his son to remove the consequences of our rebellion. God does not look at us and our rebellion against him and say, oh, you know, humans will be humans. They're so cute and how they're trying to defy me. That's not what God says. Instead, he sent his son to be our sin bearer to take to himself all the divine consequences of our rebellion against him. This poem, this poem is bad. Depressing, it's discouraging. But think of it in light of what God has done in sending his son to earth to rescue us from our sin. On the cross, Jesus experienced his own, as it were, uncreation. He was decreated for us in our stead so that all who turn to him and trust in him might have life. Your earthly life is short, and the reason it's so short is because this is what happens when creatures turn against their creator. But because of Jesus, this same creator calls us and commands us to turn and find eternal life in him. So your life is short. Your life is very short. That's the why of this passage. That's why you should do what he is now going to command. Let's now secondly talk about the what of this passage. The what? You need to, the passage says, get serious about joy. Get serious about joy. That's the command in verse 9. You who are young, be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you, the, give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. 
this is strange advice. Um, is this how your parents would send you off when it was time for you to go to a date on Friday night? Go and be happy. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. Goodbye. Is that how they would send you off? They don't send you off with that. They send you off with the law. You'd be back by 10 or you're in big trouble, right? Isn't that how that works? So how do we... Is it possible to obey verse 9 and obey the Ten Commandments? Hmm. So, some have wondered how this goes actually together with Numbers 15.39. Look what Numbers 15.39 says. God is giving them Israelites some instructions about their clothing. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey Him and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. The Hebrew is very similar. So in Ecclesiastes 11.9 it says, Follow your heart and your eyes. And Numbers 15 says, Don't follow your heart and your eyes. So what are we supposed to do with that? Maybe the limiting factor is verse 9, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Hmm. Well, let me give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on as we think about this command to get serious about joy. First, get serious about joy by enjoying the goodness of creation. Enjoy the goodness of creation. And I chose the word creation deliberately. The teacher said, remember your creator. And by doing so, he's pointing to creation. And there is much in creation to embrace. God made this world and he filled it with all kinds of things for us to enjoy. In this broken world, enjoying them is actually something that you have to work at. You have to embrace. It's something to pursue, to be deliberate about. Life is sweet, so taste it. Put yourself in situations where you will enjoy the goodness of creation. Do it soon, do it early, do not delay. Do not set your heart on some date in the future in which you'll actually begin enjoying the goodness of creation. Don't wait until you graduate to then. Uh, don't wait until the beginning of your career or until you get married or until you have children or until you have a home uh, of your own. There are today joys to be had and the teacher says you should embrace them and welcome them and joining them is in keeping with the God who made them. Doug Jones did a study of, of what he described as Christian cultures. What's a Christian culture? He said, a Christian culture is a culture in which uh, the Christian worldview is dominant, in which there are a lot of Christians in it, and there's a lot of churches and a lot of institutions and movements that teach the Bible and value the gospel. And he asked the question, why don't cultures like that thrive? Why do they fail? It's not because of insufficient theological education, he said. It's not because of poor doctrine. It's not because of inadequate uh, evangelism or weak leadership. He says Christian cultures fail because of a lack of joy. No intentional pursuit of happiness in the goodness of creation. I wonder if you're discipling your children that way. If what they know about God is not about all the things he says not to do, but if they know about God, about all the wonderful things he has given us to enjoy. Now, second here, get serious about joy by enjoying creation as God intended. Enjoy creation as God intended. We have to think about this verse 9 here and how this fits in. But know, he says, that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. What do we do with this sentence? 
Maybe it's a warning. Maybe it's a warning as if the teacher is saying, have a good time, but not too good a time. Right? There are people, there are, they're fools mostly, who need warnings like that. So don't do anything Jesus wouldn't do. Have a good time, but don't do anything Jesus wouldn't do. Maybe. The problem, though, with reading verse 9 that way is that it plays into the idea that the way to have a really good time, to really enjoy life, is to cast off all restraint and forget all the ways that God has made the world to work as if God is a celestial killjoy. That God ruins every party He's ever shown up to. That you can't have a good time when God is around and you have to sit up straighter and stop all the fun. And there's no jokes and no fun and no parties when God is around. And if God invites you to his house, you better be sure not to sit on the good couch in God's house. Have a good time, but not too good a time because it's God's house. And God doesn't like people who have a good time. You see how reading verse 9 is a warning like that could play into that mindset? Making God the ultimate killjoy was actually part of the first temptation in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? So the serpent implies to Eve this about the forbidden fruit. God's holding out on you. He knows if you eat this fruit, you'll, be, uh, you'll have good, a good time. You'll be just like him. And eating it will do really good things in your life. But God doesn't want you to have a really good life. He's, he's holding out on you. God's not stingy, though. God is the giver of joy. He's not the thief of joy. So how do we read verse 9, the second half part of verse 9? Actually, uh, let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 to see this again. Um, look what it says. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. What do demons teach about God? Verse 2, such things... Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. It's demonic to teach that God is not glorified, that God is glorified by denying joy in the good things that he made. It's demonic to teach that. I think a better way to read verse 9 is to remember that God is indeed the giver of joy and the way to experience joy to the fullest is to embrace it in keeping with the way God made the world to work. Find joy, but remember, this is God's world and He's the master planner of joy, so follow His path for finding joy. That's where you'll find real joy in Him. David Gibson wrote that he thinks that that God actually holds his people accountable for how they embrace the goodness of the world he made. You think about the old joke about parents giving their children gifts on Christmas Day and they open them up and they play with the box. Play with the box and not the present. And Ecclesiastes 11.9 is saying, God has given you so many good things. Enjoy the gifts that he has given you. Set the box aside and take the joy, the present that God has given. CLCL wrote, Human beings are supposed to enjoy life to the full because that is their divinely assigned portion. And God calls one into account for failure to enjoy. 
Enjoyment is not only permitted, it is commanded. It is not only an opportunity, it is a divine imperative. Look at uh, one of the ways that God condemned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Serve the Lord joyfully and gladly. Serve him joyfully and gladly, embracing from him fully all of the good things that he has made. Use this world to the fullest potential in the way that God intended the world to be enjoyed. Do it as much as you possibly can right now because it's just going to get harder and harder and harder to do. Eat and drink. (coughs) Eat and drink and have sex with your spouse and play with your children and watch the sunset and throw snowballs, tell jokes, climb trees, go for a hike in the woods, play games, go skiing, run in a race, go body surfing, sit by a fire, breathe mountain air, push your feet into the sand, smell the fragrant flowers, wrap yourself in flannel sheets, pet a dog, sleep in every now and then and give thanks to God for foam mattresses. Get serious about joy. Enjoy the world as God intended. Let Him be your guide for what to do with the world He has made. He is more than a capable guide to the joy that he created. Now, let's finish by talking about verse 10. Verse 10. And I uh, I want want to give you a third hook to hang on in a minute. But look at what verse 10 again says. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are like mist. They, They pass away. Here's a great threat to getting serious about joy. Do you know the great threats to getting serious about joy? One of them is anxieties and pressures. So here's hook number three. I'll I'll phrase it this way and then I want to explain it. Watch out for the anxieties and pressures of this evil world. Watch out for the anxieties and pressures of this evil world. I spent some time this week really thinking about how I wanted to cast this sermon today, and I thought of a different way. For a long time, I considered calling this sermon God and Greta Thunberg. Uh, My problem is that I'm not usually that trendy, and I'm not really clever enough to pull a sermon off like that. So um, do you know who Greta Thunberg is? Uh, Greta Thunberg is the 14-year-old Swedish climate activist. And uh, this week she was named Person of the Year by Time magazine. Uh, She received international attention earlier this year by calling students to walk out of classes on Friday um, to protest government failures to address climate change. I have seen it, you have seen the clip five or six times, I'm sure, of the speech that she gave at the UN Climate Conference earlier this year where she angrily told the crowd, she said, you have stolen my childhood. What do you think the teacher would say to Greta Thunberg? Uh, First, a disclaimer. um, I don't know Greta Thunberg. All I know about her is it's been in the media, and I I don't think that it's always good and necessary or wise to publicly call out teenagers for their views on environmental policy. But she volunteered to be a public figure like this. But what would the teacher say to her if he could sit down with her and talk to her? I don't think that the teacher would deny that the world is full of reasons to be anxious. He knows that this world is a broken place. I don't think he would say to her, you just need to calm down. I don't think he would say to her, you just need to stop complaining. 
I don't think he would say, just don't worry. There's plenty of time for you to worry. No, that's not the problem, I don't think. Now, I don't think that the teacher would share her anxieties, the particular type of anxieties she has. You know, every worldview, every view of the world proposes um, an idea about the greatest threat facing the world. Every worldview does. And according to, to climate activists like Greta Thunberg, the great threat is human-induced climate change. And without radical changes, the world is going to end up in a climate catastrophe. But that's not what the Bible says about how the world is going to end. It's not what the Bible says about the end of the world. The world as we know it will come to an end, but not through a climate catastrophe. We should be good stewards of the world that God made. That, that's true. But the world is not going to end with a climate disaster. The world as we know it is going to end when the Lord Jesus returns. That's how history as we know it is going to end. Not with a zombie apocalypse and not with an alien invasion or a climate catastrophe, but with the return of the Lord Jesus. And, and he'll make the world new. And Jesus said, actually, didn't he not, when he was talking about his return, he said that life will continue as we know it pretty much until he returns. He compares it to the the flood of Noah, (laughs) climate catastrophe. He compares it to the flood of Noah. People will eat and drink and marry right up until the time that the Lord Jesus returns. So I think the teacher might say, yes, there are anxieties in the world. That's true. I don't think he would share Greta Thunberg's. What about this line, her charge? You have stolen my childhood. What would he say to her? The problem is is not in acknowledging the troubles in the world. The problem comes when they so dominate your life, so dominate your thinking that it erases joy from your existence. As if the Creator Himself does not exist and He is not trustworthy and as if He has not given us opportunities for joy. I hope this is not true. It can't be true. I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true that when Greta Greta Thunberg... um, uh, I hope she enjoys the planet that she's trying to save. When she sits in front of the setting sun, does she smile at the sun? I I hope so. She must, right? The beautiful colors in the sky. I hope... I hope the only thing that she's not thinking about at that moment is fossil fuel damage that they do to the atmosphere. I hope, I hope she's able to look at it and say, wow, wow. I hope that she's able to enjoy how the waves feel when they come up on the ocean at the shore and wash across her feet. I hope she's able to enjoy that and not just think about turtles and plastic straws. Right? Beware of being so anxious about the troubles of the world that you have no room for awe at the Creator who made the world. Consider carefully how you weigh these moments of joy. Don't be so weighed down by troubles that you forget the God who called the world into existence. I hope this passage helps you. Maybe it will help you not to hold on so much to little things, to insignificant things, little bitternesses and little grievances and little angers that turn your life sorrow. You don't have time to bear grudges. Or even big things, big hurts, big injustices. Work diligently to keep them from dominating your life, from being the ultimate and only reality that you can perceive. Jonathan Aiken wrote about a friend of his, a little boy named Clay. Oh, sorry, Chip. 
Not Clay Aiken. <laughs> That'd be funny. No. Jonathan Aiken. Brain works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Jonathan Aiken is a preacher and he's a good man. And he had a friend named Chip. And when Chip was a little boy, Chip got for Christmas a brand new pair of shoes that would light up whenever they hit the ground. I was too old for this to have these as a child, but this is the sweet spot of Christmas presents for what? Five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, right? These shoes that light up. Um, he wore those shoes all day on Christmas, Chip did, and he would walk around like this to stomp and watch, and he'd go into his closet and he'd stomp and watch those things light up, and he would show anybody, look at my shoes and look what they do. He was thrilled, he was thrilled. Well, at the end of the day, his mother said to him, be careful, because once the battery wears out, they won't light up anymore. Chip was so worried about his shoes that he hardly ever wore them again, and that his feet got too big for them to fit on his feet. That is the saddest Christmas story I have ever heard. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? It's terrible. What a wasted gift. It doesn't matter how old you are today. You are going to outgrow the opportunities that this day affords for joy. You'll never be this old again. You will never experience this day. And you're going to age and die from here on out. That's how it's going to continue. So there's joys today. There are joys today. God gave them to you. Don't waste them. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are very thankful to you for how realistically you speak to us about life in your word. It always tells us the truth. It tells us the truth sometimes in contrast to what we want to believe and how we want to live. Uh, But it tells us about how things really are. Lord, I do pray that you would help in particular our young adults, the youth in this room, to remember this command. Lord, um, you know how unhelpful Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter are to cultivating joy. All they cultivate is anxiety. So, Lord, I I pray that you would protect them with with wisdom and, and careful insight. Lord, help us, all of us, to model before those who are younger than us this command to remember our Creator as soon as possible. Lord, thank you for all the joys that you have given us. I shared a short list and there are thousands more. Help us today to receive them by faith and gladly. We thank you that you have the God who bears anxieties. We cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Help us, Father, we pray to get serious about joy because of the good world that you have made, even though we have broken it. And we do pray, as we think about the end of the world as we know it, that the Lord Jesus would come soon. We're celebrating his first arrival this month. Oh, may it remind us to anticipate his coming again. May it be soon. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.